Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Jack Miller. I'm super excited to have Dave Ehrenberg with us. Dave is the U.S. Attorney for Palm Beach County, and I give law enforcement a hard time a lot. I really do. But the truth is, they keep us safe. And while they may not be perfect, they're the, probably the best law enforcement in the world. So with that, Dave, I thank you for your service first, and I thank you for joining us. You having a good day? I'm doing great, Jack. Just one correction. I'm the state attorney. For oh, Palm state Beach. attorney. I apologize. Thank you. And uh, by the way, looking at the, uh, at, we're Skyping this live here in uh, West Palm Beach. I just want to make sure I'm looking right into the camera. Am I looking into the camera right now or am I not? I want to make sure I'm, I, I, I can see your audience. You're fine. They can see you. You look great. You're handsome. You're dapper. And you're doing a good job. So, Dave, it seems, and I told you over the, uh, this over the phone, it, uh, one of the highlights, I think, or your main focal points is drug addiction, sober homes, opioid addiction, and I'm going to lump it all together. I know it's different, but I told you, I was candid you, within my community, family, friends, neighborhood, there's an epidemic of addiction, overdose, death. And I want to start out on this terrible topic and find out what's going on in Palm Beach County, because I know you're making headway, but I also know that when you're a family going through an addiction for a wife, for a son or spouse, it may seem hopeless. So maybe update the audience on your efforts to deal with this. And I realize I'm generalizing when I talk about opioid and the sober homes. So maybe educate and break it down for us a little bit, if you would. Sure. You know, in Palm Beach County, we have been the epicenter of the opioid epidemic in the sense of the fraud and abuse in the drug treatment and sober home industries. That's a big part of the opioid epidemic. We don't have the highest number of opioid overdose deaths in the country here in Florida, but we do have the highest number of drug rehabs in Palm Beach County. And the fraud and abuse that was endemic in the industry for far too long had led to an increased number of opioid overdose deaths. It was something called the Florida Shuffle, where People from all across the country sent their young family members down here to Florida to get healthy. And unfortunately, many of them returned only in an ambulance or body bag. And that's what we were focusing on, eliminating the fraud and abuse in the drug treatment industry, cleaning up this industry to allow for proper rehabilitation for those who are plagued by substance use disorder. And what we've done differently here in this county that's made us a national leader is that we started a sober homes task force that targets the fraud and abuse, that targets the patient brokering, that goes after the insurance fraud. And that has led to 54 arrests in the past year and a half, 20 convictions thus far, more to come, and new laws in Florida that made Florida the national leader in this fight. We now have tough laws against patient brokering and against deceptive marketing when it comes to drug rehab. We have better oversight over the drug rehab industry. Uh, we even convened a grand jury here that got Google to change its policies on AdWords and advertising. They have revamped it. So I think that you're seeing the cleanup of this entire industry 
start here in Palm Beach County and making real success where the rest of the country is paying attention and trying to replicate what we are doing here. I'll leave you with this. We have great news lately. Uh, after a, a real a tragic number of overdose deaths for the last couple of years that continue to rise, we are now seeing the fruits of our labor. We saw a 62% decrease in the number of opioid overdose deaths in Palm Beach County over the last four months, as opposed to the first four months of 2017. So it's a 62% decrease in the number of opioid overdose deaths in the first six months of this year compared to the same period last year. And in Delray Beach, which is the epicenter of the drug rehab industry, there was a 79% decrease in the number of opioid overdose deaths as it compared to the first four months of last year. So we've made real progress. And finally, I think federal policymakers are starting to pay attention. So how, if I'm a parent, let's say, how do I know which is a good facility as opposed to, I'll call it a not good facility? Um, what's the litmus test or how do I check it out? Jack, that's the number one question I'm asked. And unfortunately, there is no easy answer. You can go to resources like SAMHSA, which is the federal agency in charge of rehab, and they have a website that can counsel you on how to find a good rehab. You can go to legitimate players like Karen Renaissance, which has a listing of what you should ask for. But there is no one silver bullet. I can tell you, though, that if you ask me, is your sober home where you live, is that a good one or a bad one? I'd say, well, is it certified by the Florida Association of Recovery Residences, if it's in Florida? If it's in another state, is it certified by a similar organization, by NAR, which is the National Association of Recovery Residences? That's one way to tell. Uh, if, um, if it's a drug treatment center, is the drug treatment center offering you a free plane ticket to come down to Florida? If it is, that's a red flag. Is the drug treatment center being very aggressive with its marketing to get you down here, offering you benefits and promises that they can't fulfill, those are all red flags. Are they uh, exaggerating the quality of their homes, of their treatment? Do they have a full-time medical director on staff? And those are all questions you should be asking. But, you know, that's part of the problem is that there is no one single site that tells you, Here's, here are the good ones, here are the bad ones. Uh, you have to really do due diligence. And what we found is that a lot of people do far less due diligence when it comes to finding a drug rehab center than they would when they want to purchase a car, for example. Or if, you're, have a, if you have a medical condition and you want to seek the best doctor, you go online, don't you? And you do your research. You talk to people. You go to the medical community, discuss it with them. So why, when you're trying to find a rehab center for your brain, meaning to battle substance use disorder, are you relying on some sketchy marketer who you find on the internet or through a social media site? Do your due diligence and make sure you make the proper choice because if you make the wrong choice, you could get caught up in, unfortunately, what still exists as the Florida Shuffle, which is a nonstop series of relapses and recovery, relapse and recovery to siphon all your insurance proceeds from you until you die. I have a stupid question. If, God forbid, someone's relative is suffering from an addiction problem, is a rehab the best place for them? Well, there are very few other options other than rehab. If you have substance use disorder, if you're suffering from an addiction, 
You need to get healthy. You need to get clean. So you've got to find a good rehab. You've got to find a good rehab. Just saying I'm going to quit cold turkey is very extraordinarily difficult because your brain is, is changed. Once you're in the throes of addiction, your brain changes. We're talking about a brain disease. And I am sympathetic to those who go through this because they lose the, the sense of self-will, of, of, of willpower, of self-control to make their decisions. And what happens is the only thing that matters to these individuals becomes chasing that dragon, finding the next high, preventing the next withdrawal. And so you need to get a person healthy. Sometimes the way to get that person healthy is that person has to be marchman acted or baker acted because they won't go on their own to rehab. Or, unfortunately, if they commit a crime, they'll go to jail and get detoxed in jail. And, the, in fact, the largest mental health provider in Palm Beach County is the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office through its jail system. That's another way people get off the sauce, as, uh, as, as some call it. But, you know, then what happens when they're released? It, it's a very precarious time that they could relapse quite easily. So as a parent or a brother or sister, is it their goal to get their loved one in rehab as soon as possible? Absolutely. You don't want the addiction to linger. And you're going to be dealing with a series of lies and stories that don't make sense. You know, you'll, you'll see your loved one all of a sudden missing work and, and, and sniffling all the time and looking like he's dealing with the flu. Uh, and they may say, oh, I'm just battling a cold when, you know, you look, are there other signs, telltale signs that it's something more, you know, are look at the person's arms to see other track marks. I mean, who, who, who is the family member hanging around with? Uh, are your prescriptions missing? You know, there, there are a lot of telltale signs that someone may be in the throes of addiction. And you want to get that person help as early as possible because insurance is available. I mean, the Affordable Care Act provides uh, substantial benefits for those who need recovery services, rehab services. The problem is that we have so many bad actors that still exist in the industry that take advantage of you in recovery. So you need to go to a good provider. There are plenty of good providers out there, but you have to be discerning. You have to make sure you go to the right one. Okay. Uh, look, do we run the risk, I have to ask this question, of tightening up on the distribution or prescription of opioids and pain relievers so much that those who are really in pain for chronic pain or whatever uh, can't get the proper pain pills they need? Can we, can we swing the pendulum too far the other way, I guess? Well, the pendulum has swung, and I have heard reports that there are legitimate patients who have had difficulty getting access to their much-needed medication. It's to be expected because you are dealing with something that was killing seven people a day when it came to the pills, and now it's 14 people a day in Florida. That's just Florida. Nationwide, drug abuse kills 200 people a day in the United States, 136 people every day just from opioids. That's like the equivalent of a 737 crashing every single day. So you're dealing with an unprecedented epidemic that demanded a substantial response. So, yes, there are some doctors and pharmacists out there who are concerned that they will be targeted if it looks like they are giving out or dispensing too many pills. So some individuals who are legitimate patients may need to find other doctors or pharmacists, but if you are finding that 
you are not able to get medication because a doctor or pharmacist, no one will, will serve you, that may be an indication that you have been doctor shopping yourself or that you have received too many pills that it has raised red flags in the medical community. And so we want to make sure legitimate patients have access to their needed medication. But we also want to stop those who may not realize that they have become an addict from continuing to feed that addiction. How do you differentiate between the two is always the toughest part about passing laws for the general population, that sometimes it can be tough with the nuance. It's tough to be discerning when you're passing general laws of large application. But you're hoping that the equilibrium will be reached at some point and that legitimate patients will continue to be served and those who are not will be cut off because the consequences are life and death. Got it. I want to change topics. I think I read yesterday or the day before that there's approximately 5 million people in Florida alone who've lost their voting rights because of a criminal record. I wanted to get your opinion on the restoration of voting rights for Florida because that's where we are. We're talking about Amendment 4, which is the amendment to restore voting rights to most ex-felons in Florida after they've paid their debt to society. That is something I support because as state attorney, my chief concern is public safety. And you are undermining public safety by letting people out of prison who have served their time, served their debt to society, letting them out, and then telling them you cannot register to vote, you will not get your other civil rights back, you will not be a part of society or and you're going to have a tougher time to find a job. And by the way, stay out of trouble and live a tax-paying, drug-free, clean life. That is not realistic when you are when you're telling them that they can't be part of society anymore. You can't be a voter in our system. And yet you expect them to stay out of trouble. You want people who have paid their debt to society to be able to get back into society and live a clean, criminal, crime-free life that pays taxes, that gets a job that is good for society rather than one that feeds off society. You want someone who has been in the system to get back into society and not be a perpetual criminal throughout his or her life constantly trying to, you know, pull a scam here or there or steal or, or, or commit violent crimes because society doesn't let them participate in society any longer. Now, I want to give you an exception, by the way, when it comes to murderers and rapists. That's a different category. And they're not included in everything I said. They're not included in Amendment 4. We're talking about most felons, but not all. And so if you really want to help public safety, you need to make sure that the people who have served their time don't end up back in prison because they have no other options. 
on that topic, I would imagine that murderers and rapists is a small minority of the people that we're talking about. But I also read, which feeds into what you're saying, that I think the unemployment rate for uh, people out of incarceration is like 23% uh, because they can't get jobs and we disenfranchise them. And what you're talking about is really lifting them up and integrating them as productive members of society. I saw a statistic that showed that the employment rate for people post-incarceration is actually worse, worse. than the during the Great Depression. Terrible, terrible. What's your feeling? There's been a lot of talk, bipartisan talk, on criminal justice reform. And I know that's a big word. We've had a lot of guests on it. But what's your general feeling of what can be done and changed to make our criminal justice system more fair and just? Well, you need the right balance. I mean, the ultimate goal of the criminal justice system is the protection of, of the public, of public safety, and it's to do justice. It's not necessarily convict in every case. It's to do justice, and there is a difference. You want to protect public safety. You want to stand up for victims of crime, and you want to protect the innocent. But those who have committed crimes need to be held accountable. So how do you do that? You do that with all those goals in mind just by locking everyone up, throwing away the key, and then not allowing them to reenter society? No. What you do is you treat every case based on its own circumstances. So, for example, if it's a nonviolent drug offender, if it's someone who has a small amount of marijuana for personal use and it's still illegal, are you going to lock that person up and take jail space away from, from others and ruin that person's life forever? No. But uh, if it's what if it's cocaine? What if it's heroin? Do you want to create career criminals out of people who have a brain disease? Well, there should be consequences. But obviously, people who are involved with nonviolent drug possession should be treated differently than someone who robs a bank, someone who carjacks you on the streets. So our criminal justice system needs to make sure it's focused primarily on violent criminals and habitual criminals, that small population that continues to recidivate and commit a majority of the crimes. You can do that through prosecutorial discretion that recognizes that there is a difference between a nonviolent drug offender and a violent criminal. You can do it through diversion programs, such as our Veterans Court, which targets the veteran population. People who may have PTSD who commit crimes are able to go through a diversion program and get the help they need, housing and mental health. You do it through proper attention to mental health. A lot of our crimes would be avoided if we, if people who have mental issues are able to take their medications and don't skip their dosages. So we're talking about a whole uh, view of our criminal justice system in a holistic way, not just lock them up, but also the proper diversion, the proper rehabilitation, the proper reentry, and all these things combined can make us a whole lot safer. Let me uh, just finish with one more thing. There is a project called the MacArthur Project, and we're part of it. Palm Beach County got a grant because we are out, out front on these issues of criminal justice reform, and we're trying things. Uh, some of them are as simple as a diversion program for those who have a suspended license. Instead of having them continue to come back and forth in the criminal justice system, uh, we're able to do things to help them get a license instead of continuing to drive without a license, without insurance, uh, there's, there's a way that we can help work with them to get the license instead of 
having a series of crimes on their record when that was unnecessary. They just needed someone to help direct them how to pay off the fines and get a license legitimately. Sometimes the criminal justice system just saves a lot more money helping someone navigate it than forcing them to have a lawyer and be incarcerated over and over and over again. Last question. Is there pressure on prosecutors for their um, conviction rates? And how does that tie into that I think 90% or 98% of the people incarcerated have not gone to trial and have pled guilty? I, I didn't hear the whole question, Jack. Can you repeat that, yeah. please? Is there pressure on prosecutors to get guilty pleas, and that ties in with the pressure on prosecutors to get guilty pleas uh, before trial? I, th I don't know the exact number. You'll know. But like 90% of the people incarcerated pled guilty before trial and, and through a negotiation. And it seems to me there's we're putting people in jail without a trial who plead guilty uh, under unbelievable weight that the government puts on them. And I don't know if I'm reading it wrong or right. You'd have to show me that statistic, Jack, because I'm not familiar with it. You may be talking about the federal system, which I'm not as familiar with because I'm a state prosecutor. But, you know, we don't use uh, charges as leverage to get people just to plea. We charge properly because we believe we can sustain a conviction on that charge. Our burden as prosecutors is a heavy burden. It's the burden to prove cases beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a way above the burden of arrest, which is probable cause. We're talking about beyond a reasonable doubt. And if we don't believe that there's a likelihood of a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt, we are not going to file charges. We're not going to prosecute the case. So I'm not sure what statistics you're using, Jack. You have to show me the article. Could be federal, and I'm not sure. Well, I'll find out and we'll post them. Dave, I thank you for your time. And more, I thank you and every law enforcement officer. I know you're taking a lot of dig, not you personally, but in general, law enforcement takes a lot of shots from the public. But the truth is, we owe our safety and our security, and I go to bed every night feeling safe because of you and all the men in blue or in suits or who are protecting us. And the truth is, we all thank you, and we're very grateful because we'd be in big trouble without guys like you. Well, Jack, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I, I love this job, and I serve at the pleasure of the people of Palm Beach County. One of the beautiful things about being state attorney is that you know, we're all independent elected officials. The governor is not my boss. The attorney general is not my boss. People of Palm Beach County are my bosses. And as long as they approve of the job that I'm doing, I'll uh, be able to stay here. But uh, you Dave, never take it for granted. I follow your social media. What are your social media accounts? Because I want everyone to follow you because they can get a sense of your passion by following you. Yes, please follow me on Twitter at Aaronberg, just Aaronberg, A-R-O-N-B-E-R-G. I'm on Instagram at Dave Aaronberg, D-A-V-E-A-R-O-N-B-E-R-G. I'm on Facebook. I've got a, uh, a page at Dave Aaronberg on Facebook, and I'm even on Snapchat, So, uh, and that's just Aaronberg. So <laughs> please follow me on all or some of those platforms, and I do my own social media, so You'll see stuff directly from me 
And I take a lot of videos of my dog running around because she's really the cutest thing. That's Cookie, the Basset Hound of Justice. <laughs> very cute, I've seen it. Dave, thank you very much. Thank you for keeping us safe. Everyone else, thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you on another show. Thanks again, Dave, and keep, keep, being, keep, keep, keep us, us safe. Take care, buddy. Thanks, Jack. Take care.